0: As we continue tracking the theme of the city through the Scriptures, we have found it to be a tale of two cities. If we epitomize the city of man, where would we go? We might at this point be able to say we would look at Cain's city in Genesis 4. Or maybe it is Babel, Babylon in Genesis chapter 11. We might even choose Sodom. In Genesis 19 to stand for man's city. Then as Scripture unfolds, and we'll not take the time to look at it in this series, but we could point to Nineveh, the great Assyrian city and the center of that Assyrian empire. We think of Jonah going to that city or the great cities of the pharaohs in Egypt. As the New Testament opens, Rome epitomizes man's kingdom. And looking into the future, the book of Revelation depicts a renewed Rome, a new Babylon standing in defiant opposition to God and opposition to his people. But if we were to epitomize God's city, anyone with just a modest knowledge of the Scriptures would realize there's only one candidate. There's only one For centuries, Scripture reveals God laboring through His people to establish Jerusalem as the city where His glory would reside and where His name would dwell. We have looked a number of times through this series, just reminded ourselves of Deuteronomy chapter 12. Or we read, these are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. So they are uh, the Israelites on the Jordan River looking westward from the east side, looking into the promised land. God has given them this land, and He talks to them about their worship there, that it will be distinctive from the nations. In fact, they are to tear down the altars to the false gods on the high hills. And then at the end of this section, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There will be a place in this promised land that God will help you to identify and you are to seek that place. You're to seek it out as He providentially leads you. And for several hundred years after this, Israel gropes in the dark in the land. Where is this place that God will make His habitation? His name will dwell there. Where is that place? Mount Moriah. Abraham offers Isaac there. Then on that place, David conquers the Canaanite city of the Jebusites on that hill. We then read of David's sin in numbering the people and God's judgment upon the nation because of David's sin, his pride, his arrogance, taking a page out of the city of man and standing in self-dependence as he numbers the people. God bringing discipline upon the nation. And David in that context, purchasing the threshing floor of Ornan or Arana, the Jebusite. Eventually establishing the city of David here, that hill then, Mount Moriah, where the temple will be built. As the story unfolds, as the generations pass, indeed as the centuries pass, from the time that Moses said to Israel, find the place of God's habitation, David now has purchased this place. And we know ultimately then that Solomon dedicates the temple there and God's glory fills this temple. We've noted that in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And we're reminded as God establishes Solomon and establishes this hill, this place for, for the temple where His glory fills that temple, the Lord has said in 1 Kings 9 and verse 3, this is the place of my habitation. On that mount, in that place, where God's glory cloud has come to fill the temple. We noted last week that horrifying story as the cloud lifts off of the temple and stands above that eastern gate and then moves further eastward, hovering over the Mount of Olives, as it departs from Jerusalem because of her idolatries and her sin, lifting off of the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. We think of it and it's an utter horror. From the fall of Adam and Eve in Eden, God's long-suffering quest was to gather His people to His presence on this holy hill. Gathering His people here, His presence residing among them in this glory cloud in the temple. This was God's plan all along. This was the place Moses spoke of hundreds of years earlier. And now, Ezekiel pictures that glory leaving the temple. The centuries-long plan is in ruins because of Israel's infidelity to the Lord God's chosen people, they were to serve as a kingdom of priests, pointing the nations to God here, drawing them to this light, literally to the light. But they had defied the Lord, and the cloud departs and leaves the temple for the Babylonians to destroy. We ask in this whole scenario, now what? What will become of this place that God chose for the display of His glory? That He says to Solomon will be the place of His glory forever. But the glory's gone. Now what? What will become of God's salvation plan? We know in the history of Israel as we fast forward through it that they are taken captive to Babylon. The City is destroyed. The temple is lost. For 70 years, the nation is there in Babylon and then returns to the promised land and indeed rebuilds the temple. These are glorious days, it seems, for Israel. The temple rebuilt again. But there's this eerie silence in the book of Ezra as the temple is rebuilt. There's no mention of the glory. The presence of God, the glory of God in that temple, on this hill that God has identified, there's no reference to it. What is God doing? Where is this all heading? Oh, God's saving labors never cease. Every time that there is deconstruction in His salvation plan, it is preparing the foundations of a greater construction project. Several hundred years later, in the fullness of time, and against any imagination of which humans are capable, God's glory returned to Jerusalem. The eternally generated Son of God is sent by the Father to take on flesh and to redeem God's people. The Son obeys the Father and displays the glory of God in a way that the glory cloud never could And the Gospel writers are careful to draw the connections. The glory has left. The cloud has left the temple. But the glory of God is here again. In the face of Jesus of Nazareth. Think of how John puts this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternally generated Son from the Father full of grace and truth. We've seen His glory. Just put together the Old Testament context here. He becomes flesh dwelling among us. That was the whole point of the presence of God coming off of Mount Sinai and into the tabernacle and eventually coming to fill the temple on Mount Moriah. That He would be among us. And we see in Jesus this glory is back. In a complete way, in many senses. John brings us out in chapter 2, after the miracle of Jesus, now living His life on earth in ministry. This is the first of His signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested His glory. He displayed His glory. The glory of God operating among His people, demonstrating His splendor and His glory. This theme plays out through the book of John with the theme of light. So we now come in the journey to the Son of God, the triune God. He has come, the Son of Adam, to crush Satan's head. He has come, the Lamb of God, to die in the place of sinners and to reconcile believers to God. The light of the world, he has come as that light, displaying the Father's glory as he fulfills the Father's will to redeem his people. The glory of God is once again in Jerusalem, shining God's light at the temple. But we know there's a problem. And the problem is that Satan's offspring resists the light. Stands in the way of the light. Fights against it in opposition. Fighting that glory. And we turn today to the last recorded public words of Jesus to Israel in which He concedes that the city of hope has been lost again. Matthew chapter 23. If you make your way there. Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees throughout this chapter, the religious establishment of Israel for rejecting her Messiah. You have led the city away from Messiah, the one God has sent to redeem you. You have rejected the Savior. And it's really a scathing rebuke against them. He doesn't hold back at all. There is indeed righteous anger here that Christ displays in chapter 23 coming to the end of that chapter we witness Christ's deep anguish as well it's as if in public there in Jerusalem before these leaders he tells them exactly who they are and how they have led Israel astray but then there is this apparently quiet moment and it's his last public words to Jerusalem to the nation to whom he's been sent in verses 37 to 39 of Matthew 23, we read of Jesus' lamentation over Jerusalem. If we can bring to the scene all that God has been doing, all that He has prepared for His people, all of this redemptive work, and now His glory in the face of Christ coming back again to Jerusalem, from this place, that light will shine and the nations will come all of this in God's plan but then we read these heart-wrenching words of lamentation Jerusalem rejects Messiah verse 37 Oh Jerusalem Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing Jesus personifies Jerusalem here. That is, He speaks to the city as if it is a person. First, He laments Israel's historical persecution of the prophets that God has sent to warn His people. And notice how He puts it here. An interesting statement in the middle of verse 37. He says, How often would I have gathered your children? Jesus doesn't identify there with the prophets. He identifies there with the Father who sent the prophets. The whole point of sending the prophets was to announce the sins of Israel so that they would repent and come to God. Jesus identifies with the Father here. I was one sending the prophets. And my whole intention was that I might gather you. The imagery is heart-wrenching. The mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings for warmth and for protection. Jesus says, that is what I long to do for you to gather you under My arms of salvation, but you were not willing. Isn't He the sovereign God? Is it not true that God can do all that He wants? What are we to make of this God who calls into His open arms, but is resisted? We're reminded that God does not force His saving grace on anyone. He certainly would have every right to do so. But it's a real relationship. God gave Adam and Eve the choice to love Him by obeying His Word. And as He works to redeem people, He calls upon sinners to choose His salvation. To receive and accept that salvation offer. Now let's not make a mistake. It is also very much the case that no one can respond to Christ's call of deliverance apart from God's enabling grace. Only in that way will we ever come. Any sinner who comes to Christ, we sang of it today, we come as a wretch. That's not what wretches do, to come to the light. In our sin we come as God opens our eyes and enables us to see the glory of His name. But having said that, it is a both and. We must never minimize the reality that Jesus calls sinners to willingly trust His salvation in an exercise of the will to reach to Christ. Only His sovereign enabling power will permit it. But when it comes to us, you, may I say, are responsible to trust Christ. Jesus, with open arms, bids sinners come. Some responded, but Jerusalem was lost. Jerusalem would not serve as the staging ground of Christ's kingdom here. It would serve now as the staging ground for Christ's crucifixion. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the desires of my heart for you, but you wouldn't come. There's some among us here who long for a loved one to turn to Christ. Jesus understands that pain. He is demonstrating that pain right here. He knows the aching heart that so wants the light to shine into the darkness of those that He loves. It might be a spouse, a parent, a child, a sibling, a friend. I would encourage you to think in light of this passage, your painful longing is a fellowship of suffering with Jesus Christ. And it's a real pain. The pain with which we struggle, but let's see it that way. Let's not let it be loose ended and not connected to anything of significance. It's a fellowship of suffering with Jesus Christ who mourns here. I wanted you to come under my wing, and you would not. Or perhaps, on the other hand, you are among those who refuse to trust Christ as your Savior. Know this. Remember this. Jesus will never force you. He will never force His way into your life. The door of your heart is locked from the inside and Jesus is never going to kick it down. But He's there with open arms and He welcomes and He says, come to Me. And you must move to Him in repentance and embrace Him in faith. This is the deal. This is what Scripture reveals. This is what we've got to grapple with and come to. In his first coming, in the coming of Christ, he stands with open arms and he welcomes and says, Come. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will take the weight of your sin and the emptiness and the horror of your heart, and I will replace it with grace and forgiveness and my presence. But we also need then to be warned here. Rejecting Christ has consequences here for Jerusalem and in eternity for those who reject that grace. Jerusalem rejects her Messiah in verse 37, but Jerusalem loses Messiah in verses 38 and 39. This is the natural consequence. I wanted to gather you under my wings. You were not willing. So verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is left to you desolate. What does house refer to? It could be Jerusalem. It could be Israel. It could be the Davidic ruler. It could be all of these. But certainly, it refers maybe even primarily to the temple itself. Your house is left desolate. He is in the house in a sense, right now. The glory of God is there, but it has now left desolate, this house. If we link it with Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, the glory has left long ago, but now the glory has returned, and now the glory is leaving again. You will not see me again. How is the house left desolate, verse 38? You see the word for in verse 39. Here's why it's left desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again. The glory is going to leave the temple again. Israel has rejected Jesus and so his ministry to them is over. But Jesus will return. And that day will bring judgment for those who reject him. He speaks of his return there in verse 39. Until you say, I'm leaving, you won't see me again, but a day will come when you will. And you'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Difficult here and all through 24 and 25 to always know precisely who he is addressing. It isn't these people specifically who will realize that promise. But he is pointing to Old Testament prophecy. There is here then a ray of hope. Many will reject him and be judged at his coming, but there are those who will respond and see him as the blessed Savior. The point here is that Israel is done with Jesus and he is, for now, done with her. He leaves the city. The city of hope is lost. But hope is not. Chapter 24. We see then from Jesus' lamentation in verses 37-39 through 39 of 23, now Jesus' prophecy of Jerusalem's fall, but also the spread of good news. Verse 1. Jesus left the temple. Don't throw that phrase away. It's not just a geographical phrase. Jesus left the temple. If you're reading this properly, we're putting all of this together with it. The glory left in Ezekiel 8-11. through The glory is here in the temple now in Jesus and Jesus leaves the temple. That's a heart-wrenching phrase. He left the temple and was going away. They wouldn't see Him again. Imagine what's on his heart. Imagine the anguish, the weight of all of the centuries of God's salvation plan and now the glory walks out the door when his disciples come to point out to him the buildings of the temple. that's They're impressed with the stones. That's all they're thinking about here apparently. Is this, isn't this an amazing place? I mean, They know their Old Testament Bibles. They know... The destruction is intended for this place ultimately. And they're poking around at this idea, but as he's leaving the temple, they want him to look at its structure, at the building. And believe me, they were impressive. They were stunningly impressive. The temple was built of massive white stones that gleamed with splendor. It said that when the sun beat on that building, you couldn't look at it. You were blinded by that beauty. This is just a dumpy model. Somebody spent a lot of time with this. I shouldn't say that. But uh, this isn't going to begin to get to the splendor of the real thing. But you can put yourself there as a little speck in that inner court. It was a stunning place. People go today to see Herod's works in Jerusalem. They still stand, many of them on some level, despite all the destruction and the centuries of time that have passed. He was an amazing builder. Some of the stones that were cut out from the side of mountains and hills were 40 feet across, single stones weighing 100 tons each. The pillared porticos that surrounded The temple were magnificent in their own right. King Herod was a master builder. His temple was the crown jewel of architectural splendor. You can picture this. The disciples, many of them Galilean fishermen coming from the north. And there was a pretty decent synagogue in Capernaum. It was built of black stone and stones that were fairly small that could be handled Up there, it was a nice place and some significant money had been put into it. There was nothing like this anywhere. They would have been awed. Awed and doing then what people do whenever they view something of awe. When they look just today at the support walls that provided the platform of this great area. We can today get down, if you look on the outside of the outer wall and down toward the bottom, some of this exists today and we still speak of it as a thing of splendor. One stone, they're amazing. Today, yet people touch them and are awed by just the supports that last. The rabbis of Israel hated King Herod. But one of them spoke for everyone when he said, He who never saw Herod's edifice has never in his life seen a beautiful building. It was stunning. But what Jesus saw in these stones was pending disaster. Verse 2, But they are impressed, but... He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Just four decades later in 70 AD, Roman Emperor Titus destroys the temple. By that time, Rome had become so utterly disgusted with the Jews and their resistance to Roman rule that Rome determined Israel will be no more. We will crush it. We will turn every stone over. That is, of the edifice of the temple and all that's on top of that platform. Again, some of the supporting walls remain there today. But of the building, as Jesus prophesied, every stone was overturned. The siege of the city was one of the most brutal in history when the Roman soldiers finally breached the walls, 1.1 million Jews had died, most of them of starvation. They went into that besieged city and found in the houses and in the streets piles of bodies unburied. It was a horrific scene. Soldiers lusting for plunder went in and walked out until they could all regroup and knock it all down and destroy it. Rome determined there would be no more Israel and toppled every stone in the temple complex as Jesus prophesied. Some of that rubble is standing today, is sitting there today as witness. That pile at the end of this slide is the pile, is one of the piles. The Rome taking it right off of that platform and dropping everything. They just dismantled it all. A closer look at the rubble that's there. and What Rome did to say this place would be no more. Remember, the epitome of the city of man here is Rome. The epitome of God's city is Jerusalem. And this is the, the outcome. Rubble. Total destruction. Jesus knows this day is coming. He knows that the disciples will have questions, but He makes clear to them not one stone is going to stand upon another. At verse 3, the scene moves and comes to a reference to good news, ultimately, of Christ's coming kingdom that will yet conquer. This isn't the end. And Jesus will teach His followers. The good news of Christ's coming kingdom. Verse 3, as He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of Your coming and of the end of the age? There's, there's such significance in moving out of the city, the glory leaving the temple area, and coming to the east on the Mount of Olives where the glory left, and where Zechariah 14 says, God will come back. Messiah will come again and stand on on the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. Jesus now seated on that very place where the glory left, where the glory is, and where the glory will come again. And here the disciples have some questions. They know about Zechariah 14. They know that the feet of Messiah will touch the Mount of Olives, that it will be split, that there will be an entrance into the city, and the city will be destroyed. There will be destruction going on there, but this is the start of the Messianic Age as Messiah comes to defeat Israel's enemies. And they're saying, well, when is that going to happen? They're not particularly troubled about the destruction of the city. This has been prophesied. For a long, long time, but what they're very anxious about is their role in the kingdom that is then to be established in their mind. Jesus is going to help prepare them without giving them all of the answers. He's going to help prepare them to recognize that a destruction is coming, but there is going to be a longer time than they anticipate until the end comes. That's why we're sitting right here today. Messiah would set up His kingdom. The Old Testament supplies the disciples with the basic pieces, but here on that very Mount of Olives, Jesus prepares them for the destruction that is to come, for the temptations that are to come, and for the time lapse that is to come. Now, it's not always easy. Chapters 24 and 25, that's way understated. It's really difficult to know always what He's talking about. And interpreters look at these few verses, chapter 24, 3 through 14, and there's all kinds of different ideas as to when the near destruction is in view and when the far destruction is in view. It's very difficult for us to discern that at times. So decoding when Jesus speaks of 70 A.D. and when He speaks of the end-time destruction of Jerusalem may be difficult. One commentator has helped me with these words saying that Jesus, in a sense, paints in the colors borrowed from the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD to talk about the final destruction of Jerusalem. So he's painting in the same colors, and it's hard sometimes to know which one he's at. But for us, at this point, with the theme of the city, that's not going to trouble us. We're going to zero in here, Looking simply at the first few verses of this message as it affects the theme of the city. Verse 4 Jesus answers them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Most of these men will have died by the time the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, but Jesus' teaching pertains to all of his followers. When the city falls, it will be easy to look for false messiahs claiming to set up the kingdom in Jerusalem. That makes sense, right? Zechariah says Jerusalem is going to be attacked by the enemies of God. Messiah will come back and will set up his rule as he destroys those enemies. You're going to be tempted, in a sense, Jesus is saying, when 70 A.D. destruction comes, you're going to be tempted to look for Messiah coming right away. Ignore them. He says, ignore these voices. When the true Messiah is here, there will be no need for careful discernment and subtleties. Ignore them. Don't be drawn in by what many will claim are signs of the end that is to come or has come. Verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. This isn't it. This isn't the birth. This isn't the final event. These are just preliminaries pointing us there. To the, is it not true? Have you found that it, it isn't not true to this day that every major war and every major natural disaster seems to bring out preachers who argue that this development is pointing to the end? It's like they study Jesus here and say, "We're just not going to do what you said." And they start looking for specific circumstances that they determine and tell their followers, "This means the end has come." Jesus says, "Ignore those people. And by the way, just a little sideline, there's also those that look at every natural disaster and tell everybody what God thinks and what He's doing. They have no idea. What we know is unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. That's what the Scripture gives us. What God is doing, who He's judging, why this earthquake has come, no one knows. And don't follow the voice of somebody telling you that they do know. They're just speaking out of their own ignorance and drawing attention to themselves, ignore them. And that, in a sense, is what Jesus is saying here by way of application as we point to ourselves in our own day. But he's saying, don't look at these who are telling you what everything means. Setting dates is not the point. All of these trials and heartaches and difficulties are a fallen, broken world that is acting like a fallen, broken world. You're going to get earthquakes. People are going to die. You will get natural disasters. You will get wars that take out all kinds of people. And we will get very riveted by these events. Don't fill in the wrong blanks. Be patient. Rather than teaching his followers to be date setters, as they read the daily news, Jesus prepares his disciples for the hostility that is certain to face them as they patiently wait for Christ's return. That leads us to the word then, verse 9. Then. And it is notoriously difficult to know what it means. Then after what? How long after what? And as we work our way through this whole sermon, 24 and 25, the then's become very problematic. Some take verses 9-14 through to refer to the great tribulation period, and a good case can be made for that interpretation. But these verses may speak more generally of the time between Christ's ascension and His second coming. In any event, the followers of Christ worldwide, here's what we can say certainly, is that they are going to face stiff persecution from the city of man. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Wars, natural disasters, spiritual upheaval. As the fallen world rolls toward the end, it will be no safe place for God's people. We've been taught this by our Savior. Persecution, execution, alienation, and all for my name's sake. It's just a good place for us to stop again and remind ourselves, if you believe living as a follower of Christ is a safe business, if you believe that the world does not care if you honor God's word, you need to wake up. That's not the advertisement Jesus ever put out. Follow me and everything will go nicely. What he warns us about as his children is, follow me against the surge of man's city and you're going to get hit. It's as natural as can be. When we serve Christ, when we believe and submit our lives to the Bible, we set ourselves in opposition against the world. And we need to know that we're calibrating our lives in that direction. We're not looking for trouble. We don't want to be hurt. But we have to recognize we're taking steps in a direction that will hurt. There will be opposition. Now, people will leave us largely alone if we leave them alone, if we're quiet, if we don't ever say anything. We don't stand for Christ But when we stand for Christ as he calls us to do, those who refuse to submit to his lordship will not normally appreciate us and put them against a wall and they will lash out. Give them the freedoms and they will stomp on God's people. I say this especially to young people. Every one of us needs that. But to you who are younger among us, I say this to you again. As I've said over and over again, you can't be popular in two places. You can't be popular in the city of man and popular in the city of God. You can't be popular in this world and at the throne of Christ in eternity. You've got to make a choice. Under the pressures of a world set against God's people, the danger, verse 12, is that our love will grow cold. That's so natural. When the Bible is ridiculed, when Christ is hated, when it's made difficult for you to stand for Him, it's easy for your love to grow cold. It's easy to fall away from the living God. We need this wake-up call to remember that we must trust God in the dark and we must prepare for the world to lash out against us. Our quest, and it's just a good place for us to stop and remember, our quest as God's people is loyalty to Christ no matter the consequences. Loyalty to Christ no matter the consequences. And there will be a day, oh how glad we'll be, where we stood faithful. Verse 13 is our encouragement to that end. But the one who endures to the end will be saved That is the follower of Christ who continues to trust Him until he or she dies or until Christ returns will enter Christ's presence, will be received by the Lord. It is an evidence that we're truly trusting Him, that He is our Savior as we stand to the end, as we endure in faith to the end. And, oh what great news, verse 14, this Good news. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We can rest assured that no matter how evil this world gets, no matter how serious the persecution of believers, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen as King will not be stopped. The gates of hell cannot resist the penetration of that good news. Now, Jesus doesn't promise that it's going to be safe. He does promise that His Spirit will work through His people until the Gospel of Christ is broadcast throughout the world. The whole world? All nations? What does that mean? We're not sure entirely, but it doesn't mean every individual. It just means across the planet. The message will cross the planet. And then the end will come. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how hostile, nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. So Jesus takes the prophecy of Zechariah 14 and says all of this is being brought together. It's just fuller, it's richer, and it's longer than you could ever imagine. But the end will come. And let's think of that in light of our theme of the city. The focus shifts now from the nations coming to Jerusalem, to Christ, and His followers coming there, and it shifts to His followers now going throughout all the nations to proclaim His glory on their turf. In some sense, in some way, Jesus lays claim here to the entire earth. And is that not what He has said All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go and make disciples of all nations. Take the message, take the light out from Jerusalem. I'm leaving Jerusalem. The lights are going on. The Romans are going to level it. But this gospel of the kingdom will not be stopped by Romans. This gospel of the kingdom is going to be carried by the book of Romans. It will go to the nations of the world and it won't be stopped. But for now, God's salvation plan then is to take that glory, that good news to the nations, to His people. Just a reminder, what is the gospel? What is the good news? It is the death of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of sin. And it is His resurrection vindicating the work that he did to die as the Lamb of God and to give eternal life to those who are dead in sin. This gospel message, said in different ways, carried by various people, carried through from one generation to the next, is spreading the glory of God across the face of the planet. And that, Jesus said, is going to happen. Isn't that beautiful? Our confidence to take the message of Christ into hostile places, in places where His name is never heard. Who on earth do we think we are? We're wretches that have been saved. Who we think matters here is the risen Christ. And that risen Savior is calling a people together from across all nations. Peoples and tongues are being brought into the church of the living Christ. And he tells us here that gospel of the kingdom will go to all nations and then the end will come. We don't know precisely what that means. That doesn't mean to every individual. We don't know when that will be the case. Even as Jesus in his incarnate state says, I don't know the day or the hour when the end will come. Verse 36. But what we are to be doing is spreading that light. And so it applies to those of us here, some who say, I've not yet come to a place of submission to Christ as my Savior. I've not made that choice. And may I add, He's not yet opened your eyes to see the light of His glory. You see the splendor of Christ and you have no other options. It's a beauty that draws you in that you will receive for the joy of your soul. But on your side of the equation, don't get into God's notebook. On your side of the equation, you need to reach out and trust Christ as Savior. That message is made so clear here. Do not permit Jesus looking at you with open arms and say, how often I wanted to draw you in, but you wouldn't come. There's a day... When his patience and his grace run out. And you'll have to answer for that. I say this because I believe it with all of my heart. You don't want to be standing there. When that free offer of saving grace is extended to you through life and you stand before Christ and said, I didn't need you. There are others here who have embraced that light have trusted that Savior and how clear is our mission here and we'll get into that God willing next week as we continue the series but it is ours to proclaim the glories of the Savior to proclaim the glories of the saving grace to a lost world we lock our little lives into the purpose of the reigning returning Christ remember what he said we read it earlier this morning in Acts 1 and verse 8 by the way every song we sung today including the one in the Incarnation, was just preaching this message to us over and over again. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, start here in Jerusalem. Go to Judea. Go to Samaria. Go to the ends of the earth and proclaim this gospel light. This isn't some side issue for us as God's people. This is a central issue of who we are to see this message proclaimed by my mouth to the people that I know, to the neighbors who surround us, the workmates who are there, the relatives who don't know the Lord, to in some way live out and where we are free to speak out, where we find the open door that God makes to speak the message of Christ crucified and risen. This is our calling. This is the beauty of life that He's given to us to spread that light then broadening past our efforts to perceive the global spread of the glory of Christ in the gospel and to say, I care. That mission, that work means everything to me. And so we give, and so we go, and so we pray. When we pray for missionaries here today, we're praying for the farmers they're in a spot where any reasonable person would say, nobody's going to listen. You're talking to people who don't have never heard the name of Jesus in many cases, and they have no categories for understanding any of this. They're not going to respond. Save your time. Do something else. There's this little church here in Minnesota gathering on this Lord's Day, and we stand here, we sit there, and we lift up the name of the farmers and the work of Christ through them, that's significant. When we pray like that, when we do so on Wednesday night, as we mention the names of those who are taking the gospel into other places, when we support those who are doing so, we need to recognize the utter significance of our prayers and engage. And I trust that you in your seats as we pray on the Lord's day in this way will lift up prayers that are pleading with the Lord of the harvest, to send out labors and to enable those labors and to see the light of the gospel taking root in those who are in darkness. This is our mission. It's not a way to get big. It's not a way to get money. It's a way to expend a lot of energy and a lot of resources, but we do so because of our belief in the risen Christ. By His grace, may this be ever increasingly a praying church that seeks the Lord of the harvest to do this great work.